Today's Old Testament lesson comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 28. Hear these words of scripture. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to fetch her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were many violent, valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite, was killed as well. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the king all the news about the fighting, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, 
Did not yet a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Our family is slow to some cultural trends, if ever we get to them at all. When the TV show Scandal was all the rage, we missed out, later binging several seasons until the plot lines became too preposterous, even for us. A presidential chief of staff orchestrating a rival's murder and a president killing a Supreme Court justice. Same for House of Cards, reporters being pushed in front of subway cars and rivals being taken out in all sorts of atrocious ways. House of Cards too was all the rage and then it wasn't and then it became something else altogether. Episodes of each, Scandal and House of Cards will remain lined up in our queue, unwatched by us. Just recently we finally worked through Mad Men. Said in the advertising world, the wardrobes are much better, the music is better, and the plot seems somehow less outrageous than the show set in Washington, D.C., which is kind of ironic to me. Each program, along with many others, captures and reflects a human truth, a tale as old as time. Men, powerful men, using the power of their positions to exploit women, politically, economically, and most assuredly, sexually. Now, I know one does not discuss sex or politics or money in polite company, and yet here we are, 
having that conversation in church on a lovely summer Sunday morning, not simply because of these three television shows and many more like it, but because of the moment in which we find ourselves. And because that's where our biblical story takes us. Even just this week, we've encountered stories of prominent and powerful men, politicians, athletes, educators, entertainers, business executives, faith leaders, using their positions of power to exploit those with less power, if any power at all, sexually. To say it must stop is so true and so inadequate. To say we must support every effort to eradicate such behavior is also so true, and yet not so much complicated as daunting because of millennia of culturally acceptable behavior. To say we must support in the church and the world every effort for all exploited and vulnerable people, women in particular in this case, to say, me too, is a beginning and an important one. It is a tale as old as time. Lynette and Ernest just shared an extended reading from 2 Samuel, and and sometimes when we're sitting in church, we know the words of Scripture are being read, but we don't really hear them. At least that's the case for me. David is king. It is wartime, one war in a series of wars led by David, the great warrior, This time it is the Ammonites who will be the victim of the Israelites. David sends his army off to battle, but this time David will remain in Jerusalem to live to fight another day. Late one afternoon after a rest, David across the rooftop sees a woman bathing. He sends someone to inquire about her. That's how it happens. She is brought to David. That's how it happens as well. And she becomes pregnant. The story is not told from Bathsheba's point of view. That would be an important perspective. One important for many of us here and elsewhere to articulate, and one important for us many here in this room and beyond to hear. But no, this time the story is told from David's perspective, and from his point of view, he has a problem. Uriah, the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, is a loyal, effective, and popular soldier. So David sends for Uriah ostensibly to discuss how the war is going. David tries to buy Uriah off. But because Uriah is so committed to his soldiers and their well-being, that effort fails. My soldiers are camping in the open field, he says. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? David tries again to compromise his integrity, and it again fails. Quickly, attempted bribery pivots to treachery. 
David arranges it for Uriah to be at the battlefront, where the hardest fighting is happening. He then instructs all of the troops to withdraw, to pull back, except Uriah, who is left exposed and easily killed. David seeks a subterfuge to obfuscate what happened with confusing details about the chaos of battle, unconvincing words of duty and the wages of war. But he knows, and his intimates know, and we know. Did Uriah know, I wonder? Will Bathsheba know, we wonder? God knows. We're told that in no uncertain terms. God knows, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This story feels ancient in so many ways and as current as this morning's headlines. What to make of it? Three points, three out of so many points to make. The first is that we must take the Me Too movement and its ancillary Church Too movement very seriously. Generations in the making, it cannot be a flash-in-the-pan moment, nor can it be limited to well-known men and their very public falls from grace. Jill Duffield writes that David's actions toward Bathsheba take on a new relevance in the era of Me Too. So our task is twofold. To hear the stories of women who have been exploited and abused and, and to call the abusers powerful men, men asserting their power, call them to accountability. If such behavior displeases God, then it should displease us. It should not be swept under the rug, nor should it ever fall into the trap of blaming the victim. Stories should be told and believed, and accountability must be held. And the church, because we have been given this story, must lead the way into truth and accountability, whether it be in its own life or in the life of the world in which we find ourselves at this very moment. Secondly, we must do a much better job of teaching our children, both our boys and our girls, our young women and our young men, a much better job of modeling talk and behavior and moral responsibility and accountability. Perhaps you saw a recent New Yorker cartoon showing a man talking with a bunch of children. Hi kids, what are you playing, he asks. The kids respond, mommies and daddies. The man says, that's nice. One boy says, I'm the dad. I clean my car three times a week and interrupt everyone. A girl says, I'm the mom. I channel my frustrations into macrame. Another girl says, I'm the older sister. I'm in art school and have a lot of resentment. Another boy says, I'm the baby brother. I'm learning about manhood from my insecure dad. 
The man pauses for a moment. I'll leave you all to it then, he says. How we teach our children makes a difference. It matters about their own power, about their own responsibility, about respect and dignity, including with and to those with less power. These boys and girls will become young men and women and then women and men functioning in church and in business, in government and education. They can be taught. Behaviors can be modeled. Accountability can be demonstrated. Our Confession of 1967, now more than 50 years old, speaks of anarchy and sexual relationships as a, sy a symptom of alienation. How can we teach our children and model to one another an alternative perspective to anarchy and alienation? Let's call it faithfulness, covenant, fidelity, and relationship. That's our call, our unique and important call. And thirdly, while progress for women has been made in so many ways and in so many areas, it feels still incomplete and often tenuous. In 1956, some 60 years ago, this congregation led by Lillian Alexander paved the way for women to become ministers in the Presbyterian Church. And that's good news. Yet there are still some in the broader church who are not so sure, and some in the even broader church still opposed. And within our family, internal limitations remain. We must continue to tell that story because it faithfully chips away at centuries of entrenched sexism that masked as traditional theology. This week I read an interview of six women recently elected to the role of bishop in the Lutheran Church. One bishop says that brings a sense of hope to so many, especially those who are younger. And the Lutheran Church, like the Presbyterian Church, is doing a great deal to raise awareness and consciousness, engaging in things like boundary training, issuing statements. Another bishop said, we've made some very concrete steps into saying that God loves God's people. And God didn't make mistakes in God's creation of God's people. One bishop said this, I was talking to my brother bishops in my region because I'll be the first woman coming in there and they said, you know, we will start to behave differently just because you're here. So there's a sense in which there's an awareness that yeah, there are some things that probably do when we're all together because it's just us guys. That's going to change and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. I thought that as I read the stories of these women bishops who perhaps one day will simply be known as wish bishops without a qualifier in front of that word. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to hear their stories, to hear the stories of so many women silenced in church and society, to hear the story of David and Uriah and especially Bathsheba 
and to hear that story through the Me Too lens. It is a good, if not a difficult, thing to call men to accountability for abuse of power. Truth-telling is rarely easy, but it is always faithful, and it is what God calls us to do. Our call is to be vigilant, to be mindful, to seek healing where it can happen and justice where it should. There is no doubt that such sexist abuse of power displeases God. Our sacred story tells us as much. And our calling should always be to please God. And we please God when we respect all of God's children, those who are vulnerable and without power especially, and advance their dignity and equality. It is a tale as old as time, enshrined even as a reminder in our sacred text. And our call is to change the narrative. Amen.